Hello, and welcome to Autism and Brain Institute podcast, focused on breaking attitude barriers for complex communication needs individuals. We are your hosts, Katrine Wallish and Michelle Wood. I am Katrine Wallish. I am a pediatric speech language pathologist with augmentative and alternative communication and pediatric and feeding subspecialties. I am also a certified autism specialist. I'm a board certified cognitive specialist, and I am currently working towards my certified brain injury specialty. Hi, everybody. I am Michelle Wood. I am a board-certified behavior analyst or a BCBA. I'm also a certified autism specialist. I've worked in early intervention focused on children with autism. I've worked in clinics, homes, communities, and schools. We have created this podcast together in order to demonstrate the importance of BCBA or board-certified behavior analysts and SLP speech language pathologists, collaboration for improvement and generalization of behavior and communication goals. This does not stop at our professions only, and it should also include all rehab and medical teams. Please note that this podcast does not replace your medical team nor provide medical advice. We always encourage you to seek help from your doctors and therapists. We would also like to provide an autism disclaimer where, due to new and developing research, we want to make sure to acknowledge both people. There's new research around using autistic or person with autism, and we would like to state that these will be used interchangeable within our podcast. We also understand that clients, there are verbal clients who are able to make a choice on how they would like to be referenced, but we will be using both of these within our podcast. So today's podcast is focused on helping you as a parent understand how speech, occupational, physical, and behavior therapy are structured so that you are empowered and feel prepared to navigate this new world. We will specifically today be focusing on more of the rehab team with a touch of the medical team. We are not the doctors and the neuropsychs. Therefore, we kind of barely touch on that, but we do mention those later on in the podcast today. So however, for today, let's discuss all things therapy. So your child with autism will need a fair amount of therapy and navigating how these therapies incorporate in your everyday life can be difficult and very overwhelming and it is okay for it to feel overwhelming. The reason that we created this podcast is to try and help break that down. Michelle and I are here to help break it down for you and all the therapies we are going to talk about today are extremely important and need to be regarded as equally important in your child's development. You will have, they will come in at different times. They are all important to incorporate into your child's therapy plan. Now, the reality is a lot of times, even though these are all the same and they're all important, a lot of times the kind of biggest problem that arises or the first problem that parents come to us with tends to be behavioral challenges. And so with that being said, as since Michelle is our board certified behavior analyst or BCBA, Michelle, can you go ahead and break down for us what parents should expect from behavior management therapy and give us one activity that you often use with many of the autistic patients? 
Absolutely. Thanks, Katrine, for going over that. And I do want to also back up to Katrine and say that there are lots of therapies and there's lots of things that your child and your family are going to need during this time. Um, so it's, I definitely think, and I think that's a big part of why we developed our podcast is to help to bring all of our disciplines together, right? We all wanted to focus on what your child and family need to get the best outcomes. That is what everybody wants, right? I am a board certified behavior analyst or often referred to as a BCBA. If you are looking into getting ABA therapy, which also stands for applied behavior analysis. This is often one of the things that is recommended. Um, and there's a lot of research around doing early intervention. So as soon as your child receives that diagnosis, most of the time, that is the next recommendation, accessing some ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis or behavior therapy for your child. Let's get the intervention now and maybe hopefully our hope is to need less later. Getting into ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis, we are a science to understanding behavior. And I always like to say this little tidbit because this is kind of my favorite, is we actually all engage in behavior throughout our day. And I don't think people realize that. Like people often think, oh no, only my kid gets behavior. They only focus behavior with my child, right? Or with somebody else. However, I like to just tell people that we actually engage in behavior every day of our life. Everybody does. And it's things just like when we see a red light and you step on the brake, that is a behavior. That's something, yes, you were, you learned to do that. And You've done it over repetition, but it's still a behavior. It serves a purpose. And then the other one that I always like to think about is when you're hungry, oftentimes we go to the fridge to look for food. All of these things are actually behaviors. So we actually engage in this all through our day, all through our life. And I think it's cool to bring that up just so people can start to notice how much it happens in your day. It's part of human behavior. In ABA, we are often focused on behaviors that are observable and measurable, things that you can see with your eyes. So behavior, you see your child doing something or engaging in a particular behavior, that is something that we can observe and measure. In ABA, we are what I like to call a data-driven science. So, and what that means is, is that a lot of the decisions that we make should be based on the data that we are taking. We do not just say, hey, let's try this just because I think it's right. Everything we do is backed by science, backed by research, and at least backed by some type of data that is taken. The first thing that usually happens with your team, so let's say that you have picked your provider, you've set them up, you've met your BCBA, they've come out to your house. One of the first things that will probably happen, and I do also like to say that everybody is different. No, like practitioners follow the same guidelines, but they might do things a little different. But this is how I usually do things when I am working with families. First thing I like to do is definitely we need to take some data. So if you're telling me that you're really struggling with a behavior, 
that you're seeing with your child, my first thought is, okay, let's talk about it. Tell me about it. But I also want us to take some data going forward. I might develop a data sheet and walk you through how to take it, but I want to take some data around this behavior so we can track it and see what it looks like. The first thing I like to talk about is ABC data. And ABC data is we use the A's, the B's, and the C's. And this is definitely something that if it's going to be used, and anytime you need to take data or record anything, your team should be walking you through this. Your team should be explaining it to you, and also they should be developing a way for you to take it. And I like to say this because we understand you are a parent or a caregiver with a child with special needs. And it can be like, that's a full-time job all on its own. So I want to get the information that I need, but I want to make it accessible to you. I want to make sure that I can get the data, but also make sure it's not a whole extra project for you. You have enough going on. When we're looking at ABC data, we're going to be looking at the A, which is the antecedent, the thing that comes before the behavior. We're going to look at the behavior. What does it look like? Remember, we're looking at behaviors that are observable and measurable. I'm going to have you record some information about what it looks like. And then the C is the consequence. And that is exactly what happens after the behavior occurs. They might have you jot down some ABC data regarding the behavior that is concerning. And it might have happened over the course of maybe one or two days. There is definitely other data strategies and other data recording that will probably happen, but this will definitely depend on what you're looking at. What does your team want to focus on? What is your BCBA wanting you to record so we can decide how to measure it? So I just like to say ABC data is probably the first thing that will come into play when looking at behaviors. The next thing that often happens is kind of in line with ABC data, but there's definitely going to be a time of where assessments and interviews will occur. So this, I would say ABC data and taking data on behavior is kind of in assessments. So, but there will also be more specific assessments, skills assessments. Let's actually look at what type of skills your child has around like their gross motor movements or can they imitate some sounds or like those type of skills. So we'll be looking at that. And then also definitely interviewing and discussing things with you that you guys, our listeners, the parents and caregivers. And I think it's important for us to make sure that we are acknowledging that it's not just the parents. If you are telling me that you have someone who helps you throughout your day that spends 50% of the day with your child, they're a critical part of this team also. So we want everybody to be involved. I want to hear what your biggest concerns are. I want to also hear what your goals are for your child. What would you like them to do in the next six to 12 months? Let's talk about that. So we all have the same goal in mind and we're all moving towards the same focus. The next thing that happens often is what we like to call like kind of programming. What is the purpose of what we're doing there? What are we focusing on? This will definitely vary based on your BCBA and your team, as well as your priorities. Your BCBA will be able to say, hey, based on these assessments, these are the skills I think we should focus on. And I would definitely say there are definitely some core foundational skills that we should really have. 
before focusing on like the more upper level skills. For example, I will just say this as a behavior analyst, I'm really not focused on can my child hold a pencil and write their name if we're not even sitting and attending. So like to me, I'm like, let's first see if we can work on sitting and attending. Can they sit with me and complete a very simple activity? Because we can't possibly teach more advanced skills until we've got some core foundation. So that can often be a focus. But like I said, this will vary based on priorities of your team, priorities of your parent and caregiver. So we're definitely going to ask about that. So that's kind of then program comes in and then we will say, hey, let's focus on these six things. And then we're going to take data and measure progress. And as things are mastered, then we're definitely going to add new things in. This is where there will be a lot of a lot of discussion and communication around your child's communication needs, your child's ability to complete functional skills, such as getting dressed, using the toilet. How safe are they in the community? Are they able to walk with you in the community without running off, right? That is a very big concern. We want to make sure that they're able to be safe in the community with you. We want you guys to be accessing community environments. I think that is really important. My first step, so after all of these things have been decided, then the first step that I always like to implement with my RBT, your team is gonna be developed up, your board certified behavior analyst, and then there will be possibly one or two RBTs. Those are your registered behavior technicians. And your RBTs are the ones that really become like that best friend to your child. They're the ones that are going to see them every day or every other day. They're going to be there in the home with you the most. They become part of that therapy family and you are going to get to know them. When we first bring that team in, we know what we're focusing on. The first thing that I really think that is important is there needs to be a rapport building step. This is a time when your child and your RBT are going to build a relationship. And there's actually a lot of research around this where it actually can hinder that therapeutic relationship when we don't give time for that. And a lot of times I think parents will and caregivers will think, oh my gosh, they're just playing all the time together. Like they're not doing anything. And the thing is, is that they're actually doing a lot and they're really focusing on building that trust and that rapport together before we get into harder things. And as a professional, I've actually seen this happen where sometimes people come in and they're like, let's just get to work, 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 let's do this. And then our client becomes really resistant to it because they become, whenever that person walks in the door, they become that stimulus for work all the time. So then immediately we jump into behaviors. And sometimes this does happen, right? Where we see this happen even after the rapport has been built, but it tells me that we need to go back and repair that relationship a little bit more because we really want your child to see this person as someone fun, someone fun, someone that they can trust, someone that they can enjoy their time with. It's really important to that relationship and also to building progress in the future. Without that, we often do see kind of a slowdown in progress as well as an increase in behaviors. That's usually a sign of that, right? And so sometimes it comes back and forth. But how do you build that rapport? What does that look like? So it really does kind of look like 
playing and having fun. They're, they should be coming in and doing the things that your child enjoys. Your child loves playing on the swing in the backyard. We're absolutely going to play on the swing in the backyard. If your child really likes playing with those cars on the ground, we're going to get on the ground and we're going to play with those cars. So we, I spend a couple of sessions and a couple of hours in our time, depending on what your, your therapy hours are, building that rapport. And then after that rapport is kind of built up, we slowly pull in our next steps and our next um, tasks in a slow way so that it's almost like a very natural feeling. So that is really important. I actually think that's probably one of my favorite activities, but that's one of the things that I like to talk about because I think it is really important that we are giving time to build that relationship. But then my other actual activity that I like to do is something I like to call manda training. And the reason I'm going to talk about this one is because I think that this is something that is accessible to everybody, I think with some basic strategies, I think everybody can do this. And I think that it would be something great for parents and caregivers to give a try. Oftentimes, when we need to communicate our needs, right, sometimes we get some challenging behaviors. If I don't know how to tell you that I am hungry and I want a snack, but I find out that if I have a tantrum and I'm screaming and crying and kicking and you're like, oh, maybe he needs some Cheerios, then maybe you give me those Cheerios. But what if I could tell you that I wanted those Cheerios instead of engaging in this behavior? The way that I like to do this is you are going to be engaging in the activities or engaging with the items that your child really enjoys. It's fun. And what we do is, so if I really want some Cheerios, I'm going to have those Cheerios. I'm going to hold on to them and I'm going to have them. And this is going to be that time that you're going to spend with your child. And you can also show if you've got some older siblings or some other people in your family, show everybody how to do this. Everybody can be working on this together. So I've got my Cheerios in my hand and then I've got my, my child who's sitting next to me and they want the Cheerios. So then I'm going to hold the Cheerios and I'm going to prompt some kind of communication for them to engage in to get the Cheerios. And it's not going to be like the word Cheerio. It can be something so simple as reaching out and touching the Cheerios. It could be pointing to the Cheerios. It could be using a visual of Cheerios and teaching our child to touch the picture to get the Cheerios. It can be very simple. We're going to start with where your child's at if it's something very basic. So as soon as your child engages in that behavior to get what they want, we immediately give it to them. And what they learn is, oh, I engage in this behavior and you give me that. But this can also be for tickles or swinging on the swing. We can tickle, 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 and then pause the tickles for a second, prompt a communication to get more of those tickles. And it can actually be signs often teach early on we teach them signs you can definitely teach the sign for more and use that so we'll meet your child where they are at we are definitely going to be sure while this is a communication activity and communication I think is probably one of the most important things that anybody will ever focus on I think everybody under I hope people understand how important it is for communication to be a priority. And the more we are able to communicate our needs, the less we are going to need to engage in these other behaviors. But I also want to state that it is really important, once again, to make sure we're collaborating with our other professionals, such as our speech language pathologists, 
I like to learn strategies from them and teach them to my team so we can get that collaboration and cohesion throughout our work with your child. So finally, the last piece that often comes with this, I just like to say, and we will dig deeper into funding and treatment plans and everything like that, is that now you've got your therapy clean up and going, you've got your focuses, your BCBA is going to come in probably about your BCBA will probably come in on a weekly basis where your RBT comes in probably on a daily basis. It just depends on how many hours are actually focused for your child, but treatment plans will often be updated, updated and changed every six to 12 months. And this often will depend on your funder, but we will go into funding and resources and how to kind of navigate all of that in future podcasts. So Katrine, as a speech language pathologist, you work very often with PTs and OTs, so physical therapists and occupational therapists. Could you break down these disciplines for us further for our listeners and their families? Absolutely. So as Michelle said, I am a speech pathologist. I work very closely with occupational and physical therapy. Now, you may not know what any of these disciplines do. You may be intimately familiar with what all of these disciplines do with regards to autism, but what we will, I will still go over all of this. And just so that you know, this is quite a lengthy explanation because I want to take time to really go over it. So bear with us as we kind of get through these three disciplines in more detail. So because I am a speech pathologist by trade, I will start with that one first. So the description that I'm going to be going over today is a combination of information that's available on the American Speech and Hearing Association, which is ASHA website, okay, which is our governing board, national governing board for speech pathology, and my personal clinical experience working with the autistic population. So both of those combined, kind of what I'm bringing into this discussion, just so that you're aware of kind of where to go research some of this stuff, if you're curious about what is it that I am saying and where it is coming from. So SLPs, speech language pathologists, play an important role in autism treatment and kind of what to touch back to what Michelle was saying earlier about communication. So we are the communication specialists. This is, this is our bread and butter. We should understand how nonverbal and verbal communication work within your child with autism. And the reason I said should is because autism is a specialty on its own in terms of treatment. Not every speech language pathologist is versed in how to treat children with autism. So just like you have doctors with different subspecialties, you do have SLPs with different subspecialties. And you, as a parent, need to understand the importance of making sure that you find the speech pathologist that has that specialty for your child. And so that's really, really important. Something I really want to make sure you, you understand and touch on. And there will be future podcasts that kind of explain how that is broken down, but just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we're just, as you are navigating the world of finding your team. SLPs kind of, as I said, they work on communication and social skills. Autism is a disorder of social communication. So we look on, these are the unwritten rules of language that we're trying to teach your child, which can be 
difficult at times. <laughs> we work in different settings like home, school. If, if this is an adult with autism, we will work with them in their, in their occupational like, environment as well. Uh, I have taken adults with autism into bars as well to be able to help them navigate a social situation in a bar. That has happened. I did that in England once. And it doesn't stop at just kind of play therapy, but it kind of across the board uh, multitude of environments that we can work in. SLPs can also help your child with alternative and augmentative communication like AAC, which is one of my subspecialties. But that is using tools such as a speech generating device or which is high tech, so vo vocal output or a low tech, which is going to be like a picture book or board, kind of something that Michelle touched on earlier about pointing to pictures or giving you pictures. Okay, so that would be a low tech version of that. Both of those can be used and that would be up to your speech pathologist to decide which one of those is more appropriate for your child. If they need help communicating because they are nonverbal, um, and as we know, autism is a spectrum. So if they are nonverbal or non-functional in their language output. So what I mean by non-functional is really, I do get families that will come to me and they will tell me their child can speak. And then when I assess the child, I come to realize that all of their speech is scripted speech and scripted language that they've heard from movies or they repeat me. They repeat something I've said or they repeat their parent and that's called echolalia and that is not functional language. So there is kind of, they do have verbal output, absolutely. They're not completely nonverbal and you are, you would be correct in that assertion as a parent saying my child can speak. Yes, they can verbalize. Now, can they communicate in a functional way that gives content and depth? No, they cannot. So that's where we try, we come in and we help shape that verbal output into functional communication. So there will be a completely separate podcast on nonverbal therapy versus non-functional language and how that's approached because those are approached differently in the speech pathology world. I don't approach that the same with my, with my children at all. So I definitely will break that down further, but please do understand that with that spectrum, the speech language pathologist can help you both with the nonverbal child as well as the child who has verbal output, but it's not functional. So SLPs may work with your child on their own. They can also work in small groups, depending on what your child needs in their therapy. If we're focusing on teaching really new skills, we tend to pull the child alone. If we have taught those skills and now we need to implement them and generalize them, then we will, we will put your child in a group and we'll work on social communication in a group. So it really is not so much about what's convenient for your therapist or what's convenient for you. It's more about what is needed for the child, right? So what does your child need at that time? And in my experience over the last decade as a clinician, it really has been that if we're gonna teach a new skill, that new skill not, must be taught on their own in a controlled environment right. that helps them really kind of hone in on that skill. Once we've got that skill solidified, then we would move to implementing it and trying to generalize it in all different types of environments. It really is going to depend on where your child needs are. There is no specific 
way that this happens. And it, we don't develop, even in a neurotypical child, they don't develop linearly. They develop in different pockets. So there may be skills that your, your child will be quick at getting on some things and some are gonna take longer. So, and it necessarily is not one skill is easier over another. It's just what they gravitate towards. Also, depending on the child's needs, the SLP may work on some of the following kind of topics. And again, these can be, these can be podcasts on their own. So I'm not going to go into great depth about each one of these. It is going to be about getting along with others in different settings. Some kids can't even tolerate parallel play which is they can't even tolerate somebody playing next to them. They will immediately remove themselves. Also using a variety of communication supports, kind of like what I touched on with the uh, high-tech, low-tech AAC devices or techniques. Taking turns in conversation, that is something uh, some of my more verbal patients really struggle with. Uh, They'll keep talking and they don't understand that somebody else needs to take a turn. Uh, Moving from one task to another or setting another task up. A lot of kids with autism will tend to have what we call fleeting attention, go from one task to another without ever completing the previous task. So you can get kind of two types. You can get hyper-focused or you can get fleeting attention. Usually on preferred tasks, the child with autism will tend to be hyper-focused and you can't deviate them from that. So they need to learn to move away from a a highly preferred task to maybe one that they don't really usually like, and they need to be okay with that transition, or they need to be okay with finishing on a task that they are not really that into, and then moving to a more preferred task. And that is something definitely your behavior therapist and your SLP can work together very closely on how to work those transitions out. Accepting change and expanding interests, exactly kind of what I touched on earlier, including trying new foods and activities, reading and writing skills. Uh, this is all the reading and writing skills is definitely higher, higher level language, which I do have some patients that I work with on that. SLPs may um, also teach families or caregivers how to play with their child. So, you know, how to interpret their play and how to get them to expand on their play. So it's talking about what they're saying or doing, talking about what the child is saying adding extra words. So I always say less is more, which really means when your child is at a one word level, you don't, you don't then add six, seven, eight, nine words to that sentence, add one, and then focus them on their two word level. And then we can, once they expand on that, then you'd maybe do three to four word level, but don't do too much at a time. And so providing enough help to complete a task Um, while letting your child do it themselves. This could be an example of if your child wants food out of a container, don't open the container for them and hand them the container. Crack the lid so that it's a little loose and then hand them the container so that they do it on their own. So basically you're just giving them that little bit of help, but they're completing the task and they feel good about themselves. They're internalizing that they did that. And that's the biggest thing. They need to internalize that they're doing the skill. So providing sensory support, this is huge, and this will get touched on in the occupational therapy portion. All of our kiddos with autism will have some sort of sensory dysregulation of some sort, whether it's hypersensitive or hyposensitive or a combination of those, depending on the environments. Understanding your child's sensory support and how to manage that is critical. And I can't emphasize that enough because... If you do not understand that, you may misinterpret their sensory breakdowns and their sensory issues as behaviors. And if you treat that as a behavior and not a sensory problem, you're not going to have the right 
tool to help them through that situation and to help them re-regulate. So that really is a lot of kind of what overall kind of what we do as speech language pathologists, but you, your child with autism also does all of my kiddos with autism tend to have some sort of tone issue and it tends to be usually low tone, which contributes to some of kind of what you, what you may see as a parent as my kid can't sit still. My kid can't lay, can't sit up. They can't, they can't do anything. They just flail on the ground. They're always moving around. That is coming from their inability to know where their body is in space, as well as their low tone. So if a child has low tone, especially in their core, that can cause some issues with being able to sit and attend to an activity because the body is going to override on the tone. The tone will come first before communication. So if your body isn't stable, your body's always going to try and stabilize. So in order to help with that and those coordinations would be your PT in conjunction with your OT, so your physical therapist and your occupational therapist. So kind of five things that your physical therapist can kind of help you with would be encourage large quality movements during therapeutic play. If your child is toe walking and it's not caused by a sensory issue, right? They can transfer from different textures under their feet, but they still toe walk and that's an ankle and calf mobility and flexibility problem your physical therapist would help you with getting them to get flat-footed, holding their trunk upright, being able to do postural, big, large postural moves, and being able to maintain an engaged core. And sometimes we don't think about this, but when we sit, that core has to stay engaged. If that core is not engaged, that's when you get the floppiness, the flailing of the fingers when they're trying to sit down, the shifting of their weight back and forth. That inability to focus and concentrate does come a lot from a positioning problem. So improving balance and coordination during gross motor skills would also be something that your uh, physical therapist could work on with your child. So sitting, rolling, standing, running, swimming, dance moves, play therapy, all things that could be included in part of, as, as part of improving balance and coordination. Increasing confidence in social situations. So if you have increased gross motor skills, then you may, your child now may be able to go to the playground without hurting themselves as much, right? So now they have more confidence in a social situation. They can start having interactions socially with other children. And then providing education and support to parents, your physical therapist, your occupational therapist, your speech language pathologist, your behavioral therapist, all of us will always provide education and support to you guys. That is always going to be something that we bring to the table. That's not just specific to PTs, but always make sure you request that as a parent. Ask the questions. Always make sure you, you don't just walk out of the room when your therapist is with your child. Learn from them because the point of our job is to work ourselves out of a job. The point of our job is to make, give you the tools to empower you as the parent to continue these activities when we are not home. So, and not in your home or not in the clinic or the child is not in the clinic. And those are really the important things. So occupational therapy. Now this occupational therapist evaluates sensory, motor, cognitive, social communication skills along with the SLP. The occupational therapist will also work alongside the SLP for feeding issues, any sensory feeding problems, that would be a conjunction between OT and SLP services. So 
what kind of what I said earlier about sensory issues, the occupational therapist really helps everybody on the team, everybody, every single person on your team, the occupational therapist will help them understand sensory issues. And that is going to be really important to sensory integration and sensory based strategies to help alleviate some of the issues that you may have. There's a caveat to this. Not everything your child does is going to be sensory based or behavior based or communication based. Some of it is just your kid. Some of it is just them. Some of it is just who they are. So not everything they do is symptomatic of their disorder. And so that's the biggest thing I want us to focus on is you need to be able to know when it's just Johnny doing something or when they're actually having a sensory issue or they're having a behavioral problem or they're having a communication breakdown. That's what we're here to help you get through, right? So the occupational therapist is going to also work with the PT on motor development and motor planning skill development. And that's going to be the motoring planning skill would tie into apraxia, which is another coexisting comorbidity with autism, which will be another podcast. You want to know more about that? Absolutely. Please look at our future podcasts. Sensory integration and sensory-based strategies providing mental positive mental health social emotional development and self-regulation strategies and programs these are things that your occupational therapist will help you with visual support such as schedules timers video modeling all these are amazing tools to help with our with our artistic population and really getting them to kind of be part of their environment in an active way and as well as strategies to support personal responsibility and self-advocacy, self-advocacy skills. This is all part of the OT's kind of realm alongside, I actually do a lot of this in my therapy without OT, but that is, it's stuff I've learned over the years because I've co-treat with OT so much. So it's really important for your therapist, your speech pathologist to really co-treat with OT and PT a lot to really understand the intricacies of all of this. And that's why Michelle and I, we keep talking about your whole team. Everybody has to communicate. Everybody has to collaborate. Everybody has to be part of this because if we're not, then we each have these little piecemeal things and it's just, it's, it's never going to turn into a functional child that comes out on the other end. If each one of us do our own things separately, we have to have common goals. We have to come together as a team. This is not about any of the professionals egos or the professionals care plans, et cetera. Those care plans have to integrate with each other. We have one goal as a team and that's to turn your child into the most functional human being that they can be. And we can't do that without being a team, without communicating with each other and without, and without collaborating with each other. So as a parent, I really implore you to empower yourself, hopefully through these podcasts to understand and to know how to get your team to collaborate together and do not take anything less than gold standard collaboration. Do not accept anything less than gold standard collaboration because your child deserves that you deserve that as a parent because it is hard enough as michelle said to care for a special needs child and you need to have the support of your team in order to help you through that i could go on like this forever but (laughs) 
what what we'll move on to at this point is I know Michelle and I, uh, we had touched on our, in our last podcast, we had touched about the medical side of the team. So such as the neuropsych, uh, the neuropsychologist and the developmental pediatrician, as well as your general general pediatrician. So Michelle, could you go ahead and break down for our listeners a little bit about these specialties, obviously knowing that neither one of us are any of these professions, but kind of giving an overview of what they do as part of the team. Absolutely. Thank you, Katrine. I think it's so important. I thank you for going over the SLP and the PT and the OT we understand that these are going to be some of your biggest therapies at the forefront. And I think if those were great information about what they can look like and their focuses for each of them. So thanks Katrine for that. So of course I'm going to start by saying, like Katrine said, we are not neuropsychologists or developmental pediatricians or even pediatricians. We are not, and we do not claim to be. However, we just want to acknowledge the role that they're going to play in your therapy team. And of course, in future podcasts, we'll be able to pull in some of these professionals and definitely get into more in-depth discussions. But we just like to add them into this podcast, just because this is definitely somebody that's going to be part of your team and probably pretty early on also. So the first one, of course, is your pediatrician. Usually that is everybody's first contact from day one. This is your person that is going to monitor your child's health and development. Your pediatrician is oftentimes also usually your first professional that's going to start identifying some of those what we call red flags for autism. You're going to go into your visit. They're going to ask how things are going. Are the milestones happening? And then usually that's where sometimes you're like, oh, not quite hitting that or they were doing that and they're not doing it anymore. So they're kind of going to be your first contact and usually the person who's going to identify those first concerns. So that's your pediatrician. Then you might have somebody who's called your neuropsychologist. And so this is the person who really looks at the relationship between the brain and behavior. They oftentimes look at cognitive function, adaptive behaviors, language development, attending and motor. So, and then they usually do assessments if you're seeing a neuropsych for possible concerns for getting a diagnosis for autism or things like that, usually they send them there and they start all of their assessments. It's also noted that oftentimes autism can be co-occurring or what we call comorbid conditions. So sometimes we get autism, but we also get autism with some other things. And some of these things are like ADHD, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or we get ODD, which is the oppositional defiant disorder, or anxiety, sometimes depression can get in there also. So we've got some more of these like more mental health areas that kind of can be also in conjunction with autism. And sometimes that's the person who will kind of identify some of those things. That would be the person who would start that. When this does happen, there are ways to co-treat this together. And I'm not speaking for everybody. And this is not a blanket across the board. This is where, of course, your neuropsych and your pediatricians and everybody should be working together to kind of decide the best treatment for your child. But sometimes what they do is they sometimes can do a combination of medications and behavior therapy to kind of work on both of the areas. So it's really important when we have these professionals on board that once again, You guys are seeing them on a regular basis. You guys are keeping in contact with them and everybody's communicating together. 
We talk all, so much in our podcast about collaborating with each other. I think we as professionals are just so like, why doesn't that happen more? We just don't understand that. And we are here to hopefully break through some of that and bring our professionals all together for the same purpose. That's the hope, right? So that's your neuropsych. Then you've got what they call developmental pediatrician. And this person often looks at helping to clarify or look at diagnostic criteria and results. So they're just a little bit more focused than your pediatrician. They can evaluate children or your child or children if they're not quite progressing at the same rate as their peers. This person is a little bit more specialized in autism, developmental delays, learning disabilities, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, so maybe a little bit of ADHD or developmental disorders. So they have a little bit more of that focus than your pediatrician usually does. They tend to be a little more specific in specific difficulties or struggles that pertain to your child's complex needs. We also understand that not everybody has access to all of these professionals. You might be located in an area where you don't have a neuropsych or a developmental pediatrician. And we also just want to say that is okay. You don't have to have all the professionals on board. Oftentimes, somebody will help you develop your team. So remember, your pediatrician is your first line. Okay, then they're going to refer you to the next thing. And then from there, it'll grow. But we like to talk about all the professionals and make sure we give all the information so that you know what is out there and what could possibly be accessed. Thank you so much, Michelle, for going over the kind of breakdown of how the medical team incorporates with the therapy team. And like Michelle said, we will be bringing on these different professionals in future podcasts to go down each one. We will be giving each professional time on that on our podcast to discuss it so that you as a parent are able to fully understand how they implement into your team. But we are now coming to the end of our podcast for today. We have loved having you guys with us today. It's been, these are topics that are really near and dear to both of our hearts with regards to making sure you guys are empowered. One of the biggest things that we were talking about earlier in our podcast had to do with usually behaviors are a parent's biggest challenge to start with. And those, and we need to figure out what is causing those behaviors. Now, there are two kind of big topics when it comes to behaviors that happen within neurotypical children as well as autistic children. And that would be a tantrum versus a meltdown. So a tantrum is something that will stop if you give the child or the individual the thing that they were requesting. The meltdown is sensory dysregulation you are not going to be able to stop the meltdown by just giving them an object or giving them the attention or whatever it is that they are struggling with. It is a sensory dysregulation. And so part of what we are, we'll be doing on our next podcast is going to be discussing these specific topics about tantrum versus meltdown. Thanks, Katrine. And I'm looking forward to our next podcast and discussing that. I think that that will be, I think that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. I know that it's often hard to navigate, but as some final thoughts for today, we really hope that you guys got information regarding these therapies. We understand your therapy team is 
currently in the process of building and it's going to get bigger. That's the reality of it. So we hope we were able to give you some information regarding what your behavior therapy will look like, or at least what it looks like getting started as well as focuses for your PTs, OTs, and SLPs. I also like to say, as Katrina and I say this over and over, we want you to understand that we hope that you have understood and we hope that we make you feel part of these teens. It is important that you as a parent and caregiver with a child with autism is educated in this process. And that's what we like walking you guys along through this journey. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. We know that that was a lengthy discussion. Please tune in to our future ones to kind of break down this content even further. In our next podcast, we will be focusing on fun Halloween special edition. And during this, we are going to talking about during the festive season, we'll be releasing roundtable discussions where Michelle and I go over fun activities you can do with your child and family to increase your child's participation in their community. We would like to thank you for joining us here on the Autism and Brain Institute podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe so that you get alerts when a new episode is released. For more content, please follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Autism Brain Institute and Facebook is Autism and Brain Institute. We thank you for your time and we look forward to having you join us on our next episode.